From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. Progress. All right. Cool. I think this works. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is a great Sunday, gorgeous day here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I hope wherever you are, it is likewise amazing. So we're going to uh, talk about the parable. A parable. And the first thing we're going to do is give you the Hebrew word for parable. You guys ready? Because parable, I don't know, for some reason, it's hard for me to pronounce. Parable. Especially when I say it weird. Parable. So the Hebrew word for parable is mushal. 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 Okay, if you want to spell that in Hebrew, it's three letters. Mem, shin, lamid. Mushal. In the English, if you were to transliterate it, I'm going to drop it right here on the, uh, on the screen. Welcome, welcome. Spelled M-U-S-H-U-L, mushal. Hey, 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 welcome. And uh, that is what we're doing. It is called the mushal or the parable. It is an example of something that you're trying to illustrate. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a mushal of a mushal. Ooh, this is super meta. You see what's going on here? I'm going to give you an example of one of these types of examples. All right, so here's a story. The story goes, one second, let's get a nice clean background. The story goes that there was once a king who had an only son. You know the way it works with monarchies is that the only son, what's the son called? The prince, right? The son is called the prince. Morning, thanks. Yes, Andrew's at the door. So the... Um, the son is called the prince, and the prince eventually, typically, will become the prince will become the king. king. Help me out here. Um, who is a fan of the royals? Anybody a fan of the British royals? Any fans? Anyone follow that whole saga drama situation? Okay. No. Well, also the Kansas City Royals. Hey, I'm a baseball guy. No, but the the royals, the British, the English royals. Yeah. Notwithstanding all of the drama over the years, who's the next in line for the throne? Charles. It, Charles? I don't know. I've, I don't know. I'm asking. It's, it's like a, it's an honest question. Yeah. Charles? Charles. 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 Next in line on the throne. It's yeah. Charles, William, and George. Charles, William, George. And definitely the, Charles. Definitely Charles. Okay. All right. Good. So we got it. We got it. We got a Charles. So. This, this, the parable goes, the story goes that there was a king. And the king had an only son. Might as well call him Charles. No, okay, I don't know. We, don't, we call him whatever. <laughs> and he was next in line for the throne. But the king wanted to know if his son had the moral fortitude to be the king. When I say moral fortitude, he wanted to know if his son was really a mensch, really a good person. Because, you know, the way sometimes it's been in history with, uh, with kings and monarchs, monarchies, is that kings have been corrupt. 
right? One or two in the past. Like it's uh, on, on rare occasions, kings have been corrupt and, uh, and, and, and into things for the wrong reasons. So the king decides that he's going to put his son to the test, to a moral test. So what he does is he hires a woman of ill repute. Or I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Whatever, a woman of... The night, sure, okay. And he says to her, listen, I have a job for you. What's the job? The job is that you are hereby tasked by the king to go and attempt to seduce and entice the prince. That's your job. That's your job. And she says, what, the prince? He says, yes, the prince, my son, that is your job. And he hires her as it were, or he, I don't know, hires, commands. I guess if the king, you don't have to like actually pay anything. But like he basically hires her or, or he um, assigns her the task of attempting to seduce the prince. Now, what is his, what is the king's, what is the king's wish in this scenario? What does he want that his son should do or not do? He wants his son, if she offers, what should his son say? No. No. What does she want? What does she want? To please the king. To get paid. To get paid, okay. Okay, sure. Yes. And to to please the king. No, but vis-a-vis the prince. Vis-a-vis what she's offering. What does she want? Him to accept because that will make the king happy. King to accept or not to accept? To accept. Because that'll make the king happy. Oh, no, that'll make the king not happy. Oh. She's, she's in a bit of a, yeah, a quandary. It's like, huh, what do I do over here? Right, so on the one hand, what does she have to do? On the one hand, her job is to really give it her best effort. On the other hand, she knows that if the prince yields to her advances, what does that mean? She might be liable to something. I don't know. That means that the prince is not good. The, prin- the king is not going to be happy with the prince, and that's going to ha- cause a whole kerfuffle. And then, and then she, it's, the whole thing is drama, right? It's, it's hashtag drama in the palace. So, so now she's in a bit of a sticky situation. So here she is needing to do her job, because if she doesn't do her job, well, then that's also treasonous, right? Imagine if she, like, doesn't actually do what she's told to do, then that's not good for her. The king is, you know, you don't mess with the king. On the other hand, she doesn't really want to do what she's doing, in this case, necessarily with the prince, and she doesn't want the prince to listen, but nonetheless, she, she begrudgingly goes along with her job. Let's stop here. This story that I'm telling you, it's not a real story, maybe it is, I don't know, I don't know if it ever happened, but it's called a mushal. It's a parable. It's a, it's a story, it's, it's something told as a story that is meant to illustrate something. And in fact, this mushal of the prince and the harlot, this mushal, this parable comes from none other than a source, none other than the holy Zohar, the primer work of Kabbalah, penned nearly 2,000 years ago. The Zohar talks about this, the, the Zohar gives this as a parable for something. And I want you to use your powers of deduction, powers of Kabbalistic deduction, and tell me what is what's called in Hebrew the nimshal. There's the mushal and the nimshal. Can you tell me what the nimshal may be? 
No, not what it is in this case, but what is the concept of a nimshal? If you have a mushal is the parable, what's the nimshal? The message. The message. Excellent. Hebrew expert master. No, right, so the mushal is the parable. The nimshal is the message, the, the hidden, or not so hidden, but really the, the lesson that you take from the parable. So what's the lesson? Or it's not only the lesson. It's also like what is... Like you have analogy and then you have the analog. Like what is this mushal representative of? What do you think? What would the Zohar bring the story of the prince and the harlot? What would be the, the, cosmic, the cosmic idea? What do you think? What's the big cosmic idea at play? If you want to be ready for great power or status, you need to have the ability to say no to, I guess, the things that we would call bad or things that we want to avoid. Oh, Matt's talking about evil. Are you? Am I putting words in your mouth? I mean, somewhat. Matt's talking about evil. Excellent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. So, so here we have the notion of if you want greatness, you have to be willing to say no. And not everything that comes your way is in your best interest. Right. These are great lessons. What else? What else? If we if we posit. That what she represents in this story is the antithesis to his path toward greatness and his best... Sorry. If we posit in this, in this parable that the woman who's being hired by the king is, represents that which is antithetical, that which is opposite to the prince's best interest, that which would derail him from his purpose, so what could you... Um, the word, analogize this to in our reality on a cosmic level, what might it be? The notion of, I said it before, the notion of evil, right? That which stands in our way, that which presents a, um, an obstacle to us doing what it is that we're meant to be doing. But what's the depth of this parable? What's the message in this parable about the nature of evil? What is, this, what is the Zohar telling us about the nature of evil? Huh? It can come in all forms and be disguised. Good, it comes in all forms. It, it, it can be disguised. It can be very enticing. What else? What else? About the nature of evil itself. Let me give you, let me, let me hone in, let me focus in on this because it's a little bit broad, I feel like. My questions are a little bit broad. Why, why are you using the word evil? Why, why, does it, why do you use that as the word? Because that's, that's really where, why, why uh, what, Kabbat, what the Zohar is bringing this for. In other words, like evil stands, it's a good question that you're asking, and I feel like as we explain this, it'll be, we'll soften our understanding of what evil really is. And we'll have, what we call evil is really very similar to this parable. In other words, so stick with your question, because I think your question is a great question, and it's going to actually, I think you'll understand, we'll all understand it as we kind of close in on this idea. What is the nature of her relationship with her mission in enticing the prince to do the opposite of what the king wants? What's her relationship with it? She's not doing anything necessarily bad. Does she want the prince to sin, as it were, if we call it sin? Huh? No. No. Nope. No. She doesn't want the prince to fall into that space. So why is she doing it? But is that her idea or is it not her idea? No, I think it's the king's idea. He's the one that doesn't want his son to fall into giving in to her. 
Good. I don't think she cares one way or the other. Hence why I said she just wants to get paid. I, right. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. No, I'm with you. I understand that perspective. She's a mercenary. She's a mercenary. No, but the way Kabbalah understands it, in the Zohar at least, that as the analogy is, is, is developed, is that she also, although, again, this might not be outside of her you know, typical profession, but this case, with this instance, with understanding that if, she, if, if the prince succumbs to her advances, that it could totally mess up the entire country, understanding that, and the whole mission of the whole monarchy and the whole vision of you know, the succession, understanding that, she doesn't actually want the prince to fall to her advances. Nor does she frankly want to do this. So if we understand this as an analogy for the obstacles or the challenges that get in our way, in other words, the things that present themselves in this world to us as being very attractive, yet they derail us from our mission, which one might, might call evil, then what do we understand about the nature of evil as Kabbalah from this analogy? What does evil want? To be combative. To be combative. Good. What else? Does evil want us to actually succumb to its advances? It wants to lose. Evil is in a bit of a weird position, according to Kabbalah. So on the one hand, it's, it's entirely in the divine employ. It's entirely hired by God. In other words, it doesn't have its own desire for us to fail. This is very important. Because Judaism is very strictly monotheistic. Let me explain. There are other faiths that believe that there is a force of good, a force of light, a, for, a, a godly force, a divine, and then there is an evil force, a negative force, a dark force, and they fight with each other. Judaism believes that that is not the case at the top. At the top, there's only God who is good. There's only God. That's what monotheism is, as opposed to polytheism. As opposed to, or again, you may have different terms, different religions, whatever, but as opposed to what I would call perhaps a, a more composite monotheism or complex monotheism, Judaism's pure monotheism, or perhaps simple monotheism, I don't mean that simple as in, not in a derogatory way, but in a, in a, in a pure way, is the notion of, of, of oneness. In other words, what we call evil is nothing outside of God's desire. Are you with me on this? We cannot, in Judaism, we cannot say that evil has its own source. Therefore, evil must be sourced from where? From Hashem, from God. Ah, it's against God. It doesn't make any sense. You're saying God wants us to do the right thing. And here's something that's, that's a force, an energy, a desire, a temptation, or a person, or a thing, whatever, that's telling us to go in the opposite of what God wants. You're telling me they're both from God. Was God schizophrenic? God says, I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. What's going on here? That, hence the parable of the king and the prince and the harlot. And what's the parable? The parable is it's all being orchestrated by the king. The king wants the prince to do the right thing. But if the prince never had a challenge, then the king doesn't know if the prince is actually a mensch or not a mensch. How do you know? How do you know the integrity of someone until they're tested? How do you know if someone's a ganev thief unless they've had the opportunity to steal? I'm not suggesting that we dangle 
devious opportunities in front of people, but I don't have to, I don't have to suggest it because God's already doing it. Welcome to the world where there's all sorts of temptations, all sorts of vices, all sorts of, all sorts of messages and voices, both external and internal, that are luring us into negativity. I'm not trying to paint you know, the world as fraught with evil, but there are temptations and there there is no righteous person on the face of the earth, says King Solomon, that only does good and has not messed up on some level, even subtly. Which means that there is this notion of negativity. I know evil is a strong word, but hey, we're just going to lean in on that uh, to this, uh, uh, lean into it this morning. Evil. There is a notion of evil. Again, in Judaism, evil doesn't come from another source. It comes from the same source. But then the question is, why would God, who we believe is a good God, how could, that, how could God be the source of evil? And the answer is simply this. The answer is that God, who wants the best for us, also wants us to be tested. And in order to be tested, and you're like, thank you, God, for testing me. Like, what is it? By the, right, right. Why did God create a forbidden fruit? Why not create only, only fruit that's only trees that, that are fine to eat? Created one, one tree that he can't eat. Why? As a test. Wasn't that the first test? That was the first test. Yeah. And guess what happened? <laughs> Whoops. But there's always a redo, right? There's always a redo in life. But the question is, where does evil come from? Where does the negative, where does temptation come from? Have been learning that the animal soul within us wants to succeed? Hold on. You're saying the animal soul wants to succeed in which way? To make us fall? Yes. Oh, that's the whole point of the Zohar. According to the Zohar, the evil inclination and the animal soul, they're hired, they're created to do a job, but deep down, even they don't want us to listen. That's what the, that's what the Zohar is teaching us. Number one, everything comes from God. Even that which says, hey, come over here, that's also from God. Yet yeah, you're with me on this. Even the distraction that tries to pull us away down the dark alley, that's also God. Okay, not, I mean, that's also God in the context of hiring something or, or employing a force or creating a force to try to pull us. But not for the sake of us actually going there, but for the purpose of us rebuffing it, negating it, rejecting it, and as Marninja said, beautifully, becoming stronger in the process. Why? Because when we overcome a challenge, we become stronger. Number one, it required a lot of inner strength and fortitude to, to withstand that test. Any test, any certainly moral, spiritual, any real test, I don't mean like a, a math quiz, although maybe also, but any test is something that brings out deeper powers. Passing the test certainly gives us a sense of accomplishment and allows us to succeed. Yeah. I was going to say that, well, coming back when I was saying evil, when, when I hear the word evil, I think of it in absolute terms. Right. But, so, but I think the way, sort of like summing up what you're saying, because it's a test, so I think that when I, when I listen to it, what I wanted to say before, which I say now, is you're saying the test, when you add the word inclination. Yes. So, Good. so it's, it's, not that, it's not that the person is evil, it's the, there's the actions. Because when, you, when I hear the word evil, I think it's, it's talking about the person in the absolute terms. But when right. you the inclination, it's the action. Good. But the Hebrew might also be 
though. The Hebrew is more subtle. Well, you would say yetzer hara, which is evil inclination. Um, ra is evil, but you're right. It's not evil in the absolute sense. It's what looks to us or what appears to us as evil. But in reality, it is, it is a, a force of God or a force created by God to pull us into, sorry, to, to, to um, entice us into a negative space in order that we should reject it. That's the whole why and wherefore of, of evil or the evil inclination. Now, what this tells us is something remarkable. Again, number one, this is pure monotheism. There's no other, there's no other force. There's no like, you know, God and the devil. There's no other, there's no other force. It's all Satan. Satan. There is Satan. But Satan, who created Satan? God. Who's high? God. It's all from the same Abish. It's all from the same God. This is pure monotheism. It's all, yes, there is Satan. There is Yitzhahara. There is, there's all that stuff. But, but who is it? It's nothing other than Another name for the a divine force that's trying to pull us away. But, but the other amazing thing is that when your Yetzirah comes to you and says, hey, why don't you try this? This is an incredible meditation. You turn to your own evil inclination. You know what you say to it? You say, come on. I know that you don't even want me to do this. Come on, I'm in on it. In other words, I know who you really are. Come on. Who are you trying to kid? Are you with me on this? You're neutralizing, because you have this awareness, you can neutralize the shock value of the Yetzirah, of the evil inclination, or of the temptation, whatever that is. How do you neutralize the shock value? Because, you tell, because you're aware that this thing, it's not even real. It's all a ruse. It's all a plot. I mean, a plot sounds a little devious, but it's all... It's all an attempt to challenge. All right, so God doesn't want me to do it. The, the, the evil inclination itself doesn't want me to follow. So I'm not going to take you so seriously. All right, I hear you. <laughs> I know who you really are. I see right through you, right? It's like, it's like when you see through a fraud, it ceases to be a fraud. Someone calls you up and says, oh, you want a vacation. So if you think you really want a vacation, you could be taken for a ride. But if you're like... How's it going? <laughs> it's like, so where are you? Like, where's your, where's your call center? I mean, then you, you're right. You can, it, it's, it, it ceases to be, they can't get you if you're in on it. Are you with me on this? The Zohar's bring us in on it. Bring us in on the whole reality. Evil itself doesn't want us to choose evil. Does it make sense? Marnie. So, uh, I had another analogy, kind of. It's basically, like, it's kind of basically a personal trainer. Good, good. I like it. Let me repeat it. Satan is basically, or the Yitzhahara is basically a personal trainer, right. pushing you to the limit. Right. And, and that's the point that to be faced with these things. And then, uh, and also, of course, even when we fail, we get a second chance. Exactly. Marnie is saying it, it, it pushes us, tests us through the process of being tested, we become stronger. And even if we fail, there's always tomorrow which I think is, is really the point of this. And, and what I said before is there is, no, there is no expectation of perfection. I mean, you, you know what Tanya says? Unbelievable. The Antwerp says in Tanya that if we have an expectation of, of, of perfection, it only works against us. The expectation of perfection actually works against us. Why? 
Because the moment we were confronted with our imperfection, then we might drop everything and say, oh, I'm not perfect. I'm nothing. As opposed to a person having a more balanced view of self and saying, listen, I know I'm not, not, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not going to f- always rebuff the advances of the evil inclination. Sometimes I'll be, no matter how much I know, no matter how much aware, uh, awareness I have, I will sometimes be... Um, Hoodwinked, is that the right word? I will be, um, you know, tricked by the Sahara, And that's fine. As long as I recognize that, that it was a mistake and I'm not going to do it again. And I get back up and I pick myself back up. And I can become stronger through failure sometimes than even success. In other words, there's strength in rebuffing the advances. And there's also strength that's born of fault, failing, getting back up. And then never again doing it again, or you know, being driven to not to not again do that. So there's say it again to build on it. And I see Tony wrote in the chat, um, we're emphasizing self-responsibility as opposed to a trickster element to blame for our own actions. Exactly. We're not blaming the evil inclination. We're not blaming the forces of negativity from without and within. What we're saying is it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility. We are the prince. We have been, we're being confronted with challenges that are emanating from God, right? That are intended for our own benefit. When we fail to see that, when we see this temptation as a standalone, that's when it's the most dangerous. When we recognize that's all part of a divine plan, of a divine, um, a divine gift almost to make us stronger, then that will make us stronger. Does it make sense? But stronger to what purpose? Stronger to what purpose? I think what you're asking is, or is touching on a bigger question, which is why was the soul sent down to earth in the first place? Because that answers, the two questions are answered by the same, by the same thing. If there was a, every soul, all of our souls began above in a very pure, divine, spiritual place. And everything was fine. There was nothing wrong. And then God took the soul. Again, you know, we're kind of uh, concretizing the process. Took the soul put into a body, sent it down into this world. Why? To drive the soul crazy. The soul was able to 24-7 be involved in spiritual pursuits. And now it has to contend with the body, contend with the animal soul, contend with all this stuff. Eat and drink and sleep and work and all this stuff. The soul has to be involved in all the mishagas and all the craziness. Why? Why does the soul need that? So one of the answers given in Kabbalah, many answers given, one of the answers is the soul becomes stronger through the process. So you're asking what kind of strength? There's the strength of being tested as opposed to not being tested. Someone who's never been tested may have strength, inner strength, but never had the opportunity to exercise it. It's kind of like um, artistic expression, right? As you know, right, with, with, with jewelry and art. So like, if you never had the opportunity to, to flex that. So you might have had latent powers, your potential, but you never expressed it because that never came up. The soul has tremendous reservoirs of strength that hanging out on the beach in heaven, so to speak, it would never access. It, can only, it only accesses when it's confronted with fierce challenge. The prince, having never confronted a moral challenge, a moral challenge, dilemma, the prince will never pull on his own sense of right and wrong, a deep sense of right and wrong. 
When you shelter the prince in the palace and only good things are around him, so there's some, some elements, depth of the prince that, that will never come out. The only way it comes out is when the prince is exposed to the negativity. You're saying, so who cares if the soul is strong or not strong? Good question, good question. I guess God wants the soul to be strong. That's one answer. Another answer is that the soul is not here for itself. It's here to make the world a home for God, and that means Mashiach. So that's a different answer that's given. But there is something about the strength, about, about the soul kind of realizing its own strength. It says the descent of the soul into this world is for the sake of ascent, because the soul becomes stronger. And I understand your question. So let's say the soul is not so strong. <laughs> it saved a round trip, right? It, it's not so strong, but it didn't, didn't have to go through all this drama. So maybe that's better to not go through drama. I guess God wants it to, to be steel, to be stronger. Um, I think of it as that, sort of like, you know, I've heard before that man is higher than the angels. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because we, you know, they don't, they, they don't have a choice. They've got to be angels. Right. And what this is, is that being God's image, we have to, and, and you know, get in touch. It's like the trainer. We basically, the Yeserah is our trainer, and we can grow with it. We make mistakes, you know, and then you don't quit, and you keep going with it. Less and less, you don't do this, you know, do the same things too many times. Over right, and, over and we get other stuff right along the way. Marnine is saying, just so everyone, everyone online hears as well, that um, this is how perhaps we're in the divine image. We're able to to access the full suite of powers that God has given us. Because otherwise, we might have powers that God has given us that remain latent and unrealized. And this way, we're higher than the angels. We're emulating God because we're pulling out all of these incredible, incredible abilities. Now, I want to share something about this process. In other words, let's get a little bit meta. You with me on this? Meta means we're going to take a step back and look at what we just did. So I shared with you the parable, the mushal. And then I shared the nimshal, like what the parable is teaching us, right? And we walked away. We started off with a story of a king, a prince, and this woman. And we're walking away with an understanding of monotheism, understanding of the role of evil in the universe, and our role in life and our purpose in life. These are very big, big topics. These are very big topics. Why does the Zohar bring a mushal? Why does the Zohar bring a parable? Why does it give the example of the, of the king and the prince and the woman? Why does it give that example? The answer is because the concept, the way it is in the, in the universe, the way it is spiritually, the way it is with God and with us and with evil and with temptation, etc. If that would, would be discussed just purely in the concept it might be a little bit hard to, to relate to. It might be a little bit hard to wrap our heads around. So when we get, when we get, a, when we get a parable, when we get a story, it's a little bit easier to relate to. Right? It contextualizes the lesson. Does that make sense? The danger is, with any mushal, the danger is, again, mushal is, equals parable. The danger is that a person might hear the parable and just think it's an interesting story and get stuck with the story. I'll tell you another story. 
There was once a young boy, young boy, there was once a, uh, a young man who visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This was shortly before his bar mitzvah. As was the custom, so bar mitzvah boys and bar mitzvah girls and people that were chassanim and kalas, uh, uh, grooms and brides that were going to get married shortly, so they would have an opportunity, depending on the year, depending on the era, an opportunity to have a, uh, a meeting with the Rebbe, with the Rebbe. And so there was a young man, young boy, keep on saying young boy, a young man of 12 years old, call a 12-year-old a young man? What do, we, what do we call a 12-year-old? I don't know. A 12-year-old boy on the cusp of his bar mitzvah had a private meeting, I think with his parents, but had a meeting with the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said to him, you know, American boy from New York, this is back, I don't know, 50s, 60s, who knows? So Rebbe says to him, do you like baseball? And the young boy says, the boy says, yeah, I love baseball. He says, do you go to baseball games? He says, yeah. You know, I don't know if you know, back in the day, the Brooklyn Dodgers, before they became the Los Angeles Dodgers, they were Brooklyn Dodgers. And the Brooklyn Dodgers played in Ebbets Field. You know where Ebbets Field is? Crown Heights. Crown Heights. Not that far from Chabad headquarters on Eastern Parkway. Sandy Koufax played for Brooklyn Dodgers. Sandy Koufax. Yeah. Yeah. So Brooklyn Dodgers, Ebbets Field. The Rebbe once noticed that this is back in the day, maybe even the 40s or 50s. This was really early on. The Rebbe became Rebbe in 1951, so this might have been even before that. He noticed when he was like, you know, very hands-on with the yeshiva, so he noticed that one of the guys was, uh, hadn't been at the nighttime learning session, the night learn. So he saw him the next day, he said, where were you? He said, I have to confess, I went to, the, I went to a baseball game. <laughs> he ditched class for a baseball game. He said, which game did you go to? He said, the Yankees. He said, look, if you're going to a game, at least you should support the local team. <laughs> anyway, that was... Uh, <laughs> going all in the Bronx. You got a local team right here. <laughs> My grandfather, a blessed memory, grew up in Brownsville, which is... Okay, if this is Crown Heights, it's a little bit... It's a few blocks east of Crown Heights. But it's like just a handful of blocks east of, of Crown Heights. My grandfather grew up a Yankees fan. So it wasn't so uncommon that even people in the neighborhood-ish were, were, were Yankees fans. I guess, you know, when you win 27 World Series or so, or whatever it is, I guess you get, a, you get a fan base. Anyway, back to our story. So he asked the young boy, do you like baseball? Yes. Do you go to baseball games? Yes. He says, okay, let me ask you a question. When you go to a baseball game, what's the difference? Maybe he asked him some more questions. So do you cheer for your team? Yes. Okay. Says, but what's the difference between the fans, and the players. Oh, oh, no, no, he said like this. I'm sorry. He said, one second. Let me rewind the drop. He said, if you're at a game and your team is losing, like big time, by a lot of runs, and it's like the sixth, seventh, eighth, and you're like, your team is not going to win. Is it possible that you're going to leave? He said, yeah, you know. Get a jump on traffic, leave. 
I must confess, I did that with my kids last week. Monday night, went to the Phillies Braves game. We got a ring, we got a replica ring, and then we just we noped out in the eighth inning. Um, but it was a school night and it was very late. So the Rebbe asked this young man, this 12 year old boy, he said, um, What about the players? They also leave? He said, No, of course not. They're the players. Yeah, but they're losing and they're not going to win. They don't leave? No. <laughs> Set up. <laughs> Hook, line, and sinker, baby. So he says, what's the difference between players and the fans? The, the fans, no matter how rabid they are, they're just the fans. And they can, they can leave the game. But the players are committed. Rabbi says to this young boy, he says to him, you're almost bar mitzvah. Until now, you've been a fan of Judaism. When you become 13, you become a player. <laughs> Until now, you're learning about Judaism and it's exciting and whatever, but you're not on the hook. You're not on the hook. You're, you're a fan. You might be really into it, really excited on your feet, cheering, woo, but you can always leave the game. But when you become bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, when you become of age, you become a player. Now you're in it to win it. You got to see it through. You, there's no quitting the game. You're in it, you're in it. Make sense? There are many stories where the rabbit pulled out like science or technology or sports analogies and like... Do you think he used that with um, it's possible he used it for more than one. Yeah, it's possible. But I, I know the story from in one particular instance. There's a book that a friend of mine compiled. I forget what it's called. It's something along the lines of like life's messages or whatever. But it's like all these uh, story, not all stories, where the Rebbe used like modern current examples to like share spiritual truths. So this was the the, the Rebbe's way of speaking to an American kid who loved baseball, on his terms, and telling him what a bar mitzvah is about. Like, what is, what's going to happen when you turn 13? So it's another, it's, another, it's another birthday, it's another year checked off on the calendar. What's, what's a bar mitzvah? It's a DJ, it's a party, it's a kiddish? Or is it something else, something much deeper? And the Rebbe was expressing this, now, now you're in the game. You're no longer on the sidelines, you're no longer in the stands, you're no longer watching, observing, participating on some level saying we won even though it's not really we. But when you become bar mitzvah, now you're on the team. This is a mushal. It's a parable. The Rebbe was trying to speak to this child and, and, and impress upon him the importance of bar mitzvah. There's multiple ways to do that. You can say, being a bar mitzvah is a b- b- responsibility. And, and you know what a 12-year-old hears responsibility? Blah, 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 responsibility. What does responsibility mean? What does that mean? But you use sport, you use something that the child can relate to, baseball. I know that I'm in the, I, I'm, I'm in the, I paid money to get in. I paid money to get in. So I'm invested. But I can always leave. I can always leave. When you're on the field, you can't leave unless your name is Antonio Brown. But other than that, you <laughs> cannot leave. You cannot leave you in the middle. Yeah, 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 okay, fine. But, again, you could, theoretically. You could retire, but... No, no, I'm saying, 
that's the difference what makes a champ like for the last right you can right you can like tune out from the game yeah, yeah. true right but anyway this was the, so what is the role of the mushal here what is the role of the of the parable the role is to take a concept that otherwise might be a little bit not that it's like lofty but a little bit conceptual and to bring it down to this 12 year old on the cusp of his bar mitzvah, to bring it down to him on his level so that he can understand it. Now, the danger is, you know what the danger is? The danger is that the child could hear the story about baseball and say, oh, we're talking about baseball, and miss out on the message, even if the message is related, right, in clear, clear language. But it may be, oh, so you had a meeting with the rabbi? Yeah, what did he speak about? He talked about baseball. You with me, right? Like, you could sometimes, in a, in a parable, you might, especially a child, might lose the vision of what of what the analog of what the message is. You might just hear a story and be like, "Oh, I heard a great story." There's a uh, there's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot. I was just going to say that Rev, about talking about how you need to be careful with your words when you're, when you're when you're when you're teaching something. Yes, yeah. There's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot that says, "Be careful with what you say when teaching because you never know what your students are going to listen to." And in yesterday's, in the first chapter, uh, in, in yesterday's chapter, chapter five, it says there are four different types of students. There's the sponge that absorbs everything. There is the funnel where it goes in one ear, goes out the other. <laughs> then there's the, I'm forgetting the English terms. There's the sieve. Sieve is the last one. And then there is the, anyway, there's one that, Let's like wine. You pour in wine and it retains the sediment. Lets the wine go through, but it retains the sediment. The other one lets the bad stuff through and, and keeps the good stuff. So the question is, if you're filtering, what are you keeping? So I was learning with my son with Shalom. That's the good one. But the one before that is the one where it lets the wine, the good wine, go and it only retains the sediment. Now that's good if because you're collecting another vessel. But what does the actual thing contain? It contains the sediment, which is not the good stuff. So I told Shalom, I'm like, you know, sometimes you can be in a class and the teacher tells you stories and jokes, and you walk out of the class and the only thing you remember are the stories and the jokes. That's what that would be. It's like you remember the the sediment. You remember the you retain the accessories, but not not the main, not the main course, not the main stuff. So the key in learning is to hear the stories and the analogies and maybe the jokes and whatever, but then to re- to walk away with the real content. The danger in using danger, the challenge in using a parable is that the student might remember the story and not necessarily the message. The advantage of using a parable is that you can convey a message and even a deep message in a way that's easily or at least readily understandable. Does all this make sense? I want to give you some more. Light. The difference between light and liquid. They both begin with the letter L. But what's the difference between light and liquid? So when it comes to liquid, a second. Sticky cups. There we go. Okay, when it comes to liquid. Huh? I'll take one of the other ones. Yeah, I could. Okay, when it comes to liquid, I have right here tea. I don't want to spill it on my computer, but 
Trust me, there's tea in here. Then I can pour it from one cup to the other. I have two cups of tea. This may not be the most envir- environmentally friendly <laughs> example I've ever done, but nonetheless, I now have two cups of tea. This cup, I can finish and consume. I can consume this entire cup. I can drink this entire, entire, uh, the, the, all, all the tea in this cup. And this cup, this new one, will still remain. Correct? This life exists, this entity, this reality, this liquid exists now, separate from this one. It started off unified. I poured off some into another cup. And now there are two iterations of liquid. One is not dependent on the other. When it comes to light, we find a very different reality. Light cannot exist without its source. If you take a flashlight in a dark room, imagine this room was pitch black, and you come in with a flashlight, and you shine the flashlight around the room, then you walk out and close the door, the room is now dark. It doesn't retain any of the light that you sprayed in the room, correct? If you put light in a box, if you put a flashlight in a box, and then close it while you pull out the flashlight, is there light in the box? No. You cannot trap light in a box. You know why? Because light always needs its source. I, I know I'm saying obvious things, but there's a difference between liquid and light. In the language of Kabbalah, Shefa and Ar. Shefa means a flow, typically a flow of liquid, and Ar is light. The difference between Shefa and Ar is, by the way, the mystics and philosophers use, these, use both of these terms. Actually, the Jewish philosophers use the word Shefa. If you've ever heard of the word hashpa'a or mashpia, hashpa'a means like a flow of energy, a flow of blessing. Then you have ar, which is light. The Kabbalists preferred the analogy, preferred the language of light over shefa, over flow. Over the word flow, overflow. The reason is, before I get to the reason, so what's the difference? Again, when you pour something, when you pour liquid into a new place, it stays in that place, and the original, the source, can go, can be eliminated, can be destroyed. It doesn't affect the, the second generation of the liquid. Whereas when it comes to light, light cannot exist in the second generation without the source. If you turn off the flash or remove the source of light in a room or in a, in a box, that light is no longer. Because the light is nothing but a, a, a ray or a shine from the source. Our Light is its entire identity is when, it, it's con- when it's connected to the mar, to the source of light. Turn off the light for a moment. Turn off the source of light for a moment and all of the light disappears. Again, I'm going to say it one more time. Light. You look outside and it's bright outside. There's light, sunlight. There's no light. That light doesn't exist. I know, I know it exists because I see it. You and I see it. But it doesn't exist separate from the sun. All that we're seeing here is an emanation from the sun. If the sun were to disappear, God forbid, that light wouldn't be outside. It just wouldn't be. It couldn't be. Because light doesn't have its own life outside the source. Does this make sense? Yes? Sort of? 
Kabbalah uses this as a mushal, as a parable, to understand how creation works and how everything in existence is utterly dependent on its source. Whereas many ancient philosophers believed that there was a God or a first cause or a prime mover that spawned or that, that, that began everything, that got the ball rolling on, on existence and creation, the, the ancient philosophers, I'm referring to like the Greek philosophers and others, believed that that prime mover or first cause is no longer involved in the goings-on of, of the world. In other words, that God can pretty much be taken out of the equation and the world is created in such a way that it is, it is ongoing and it, 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 keeps on, it keeps on rolling forward. Whereas Kabbalah says that's an impossibility. Why? Because everything is created, uh, everything is created in the, in, the, in the construct of light and the nature of light is that if you want the light to be shining here, it has to be connected unbroken, un, in an unbroken way to the source of light. If at any moment that connection is disrupted or the source disappears, then the light disappears as well. We are nothing but, something we've discussed in many, many, many classes and in many instances, this reality that we're in is nothing but, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a hologram, but a projection. It's a divine projection. Think about a movie theater, right? You have, a, you have the movie projecting on the screen, it's coming from the back of the theater. There's a little, there's a room with a projector and it's, right, shine, the light is shining. If that projector goes out, the movie stops playing. If someone puts up an opaque panel in front of that projector, the movie stops playing. Why? Because there's no movie there. Even though you see it on the screen, that's not where it is. It's there. What you're seeing there is nothing but what was over there. Everything that we see here is nothing but what's up there. Our reality is completely contingent on the divine source, unbroken, without any disconnection. If for any moment this were to be interrupted, the connection between source and manifestation would be interrupted, we would cease to be. This is a parable. The, the parable of the sun and light and the nature of light is a parable brought in in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy to teach us about the notion of creation and also constant creation. Why it is that we believe that God constantly is recreating the universe. Because like a projector that's projecting a, a, an image or a film, on, a movie on the screen, there constantly has to be a flow of light. If, if the movie starts playing for the first five minutes and then someone unplugs the projector, the movie stops immediately. It has to constantly be flowing from projector to screen for the movie to keep on going. Our reality is constantly being created by God at every single moment. If for one moment God were to, were to cease creating, we wouldn't be here anymore. Does that make sense? So, so what happens on Shabbos? Oh, good question. Good question. <laughs> when we say that God rests on Shabbat and doesn't create, what it means, it doesn't mean that he doesn't project. It means that he doesn't create in a way of novelty or using the language of Kabbalah. This is referring to the externality of the worlds is what ceases to be. But the but the, the, the inner aspect of creation is still being powered. In other words, God is not fixing things on the outside, but he's still powering things on the inside. It's kind of like on Shabbat when we rest, we don't actually stop living. 
but we stop doing the external things, the external work, and we start live and we but we continue to, to exist in a deeper way. I'm giving you the ba- now it gets even more complicated. It gets even more complicated. Because it says that in Rosh Hashanah, God stops creating on a deeper level because he's reassessing the whole purpose of creation. So the Kabbalists ask the question, what happens when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos? Okay, because then you have a cessation from the external act of creating and the internal act of creating, which means, <laughs> how are we here? That's the big question. But to that, Kabbalah says, it's the internal of the external and the external of the internal that is affected, but there's still the opposite of both that are still around. Don't, don't have time to analyze that, but, but all these questions are discussed in, in Kabbalah. Then you have vacation. When you're on vacation, you pull back. And then when you want to, then when you want to retreat to like make plans for the year, you're really pulled back. You know, so it's like there's, there's different levels of of, of retreat. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 it, that doesn't, it doesn't but you're still you're, yeah. you're still living. You're right. still existing, right? Um. So again, as opposed to some of the ancient philosophers that believed that God, it's one and done. God created it, right? Turned the crank on it, put a battery in, and it's rolling by itself. And God is doing something else. Kabbalah maintains that no, God is constantly recreating existence. God is constantly creating our world. That's a big idea, constant creation. It's one of the major Kabbalistic doctrines. Hisavos timidis, constant creation. It affects everything. It affects how we live our lives. It affects how we see the universe. It affects how we view failure. One small example about failure. If I failed in the previous moment, that need not take me down. That need not bring me down. Why? Because this moment is a brand new moment. This is a new creation. This moment of time, God recreated, God created the world anew this moment. Whatever happened in the past, I can choose to not have that affect my life right now. I can choose to see this moment as brand new and therefore a new opportunity with a blank slate. It's a very radical perspective. It's a, it's a super radical perspective. And yet, it's one of the implications of this notion of constant creation. So when it comes to when it comes to this, um, this parable, this mushal of light and creation, this, the, the mushal of light, the parable of light, the analog is creation, and it's a very deep concept. If we were to discuss constant creation and the, the notion that God is constantly powering the universe, somebody might say, why, how, how does this make any sense? But you bring in the analogy of light, and suddenly now things make sense. It's like, oh, light, I can get that. The moment we turn off the light in this room, it's not going to be dark because there's light coming in. But let's say you're in a dark room. Let's say you're in a closed room, no windows. The lights are on. The room is light. You turn off the lights, and it's dark immediately. Why is it dark? Why is it dark? Why doesn't it stay around like the, like the liquid? It should be a little light Just because it's been on for a while, so there should be a little light hanging in the air. There's no light. There's no light hanging in the air. The light that's here is that. It's the light bulb. It's the source of light. There's no other light. Light doesn't have its own existence. Light doesn't have its own existence outside of the source of light. The, and in, this, in, this, in, this, in the same way, the world doesn't have its own existence outside the source, which is God. Does that make sense? Sort of. More or less. Finally, one more parable. This is one that we did recently in our JLI course, Beyond Right, to illustrate the notion of collective and mutual responsibility. So we gave the example of a ship, 
A ship comprised of many cabins. Let's put a number on it. Let's say you're on a ship and that you're on a cruise ship. And the cruise ship, let's do a raise of hand. Who's been on a cruise ship before? Cruise ship? Any cruise ships? Okay. You're on a cruise ship. And, and somebody decides that they're going to drill a hole under their cabin. That's it. They're going to drill a hole. Why? Because it's their cabin. They paid for it. They paid for it. It's a 10-day 10, 10 cruise, and that's it. They paid for the cabin. They're going to drill where they want to drill. Are there cabins that are underwater? Is that a thing on a ship? Or no? Or typically above water? No? They're above water? All right. You see my extensive experience with cruises. <laughs> Non-existent, huh? No, I, I Hope not. So again, I, we have to perhaps stretch our imagination because I'm sure modern cruise ships are not built uh, so rickety. Nonetheless, imagine someone's drilling under their, under their, their cabin and that's going to cause a breach. And person says, listen, I paid for the cabin. I'm going to drill where I want to drill. And that's it. You, 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 this is my personal business with my cabin. Stay out of it. They rent it. They don't have Theoretically. Theoretically, person says, it's mine. That's it. Forget about it. It's mine. Don't, don't mess. Don't bother me. I don't bother you. You don't bother me. I'm drilling a hole. That's it. Doesn't, it this is not your business. It's my business. What would you tell them? What do you mean it's not my business? Of course it's my business. Your hole, right? The water that comes in because of that little hole that you're drilling, that's going to affect me. Of course it's my business. There's another parable about a guy who wanted a piece of rope. He needed a piece of rope. You know, when those moments come, I need a piece of rope. So he cl- he's at a party, decides to start snooping around for some rope. So he goes up to the attic, and he sees there's rope. He takes out a knife, a pocket knife, whoosh, flips it open, and just saws off a piece of rope. In the meantime, that rope was holding up the chandelier. And the... Um, I know that's not how chandeliers work nowadays, but just work with me. Back in the day, maybe the chandelier was, was roped through the ceiling into the attic, into the whatever, and it was tied around something. This guy cut the rope, the whole chandelier falls, and almost hurt, you know, almost caused injury and certainly caused um, damage, financial uh, loss. The guy comes down, everyone's, <gasps> everyone's shocked. They look at the guy, where were you? I was upstairs, what were you doing? Just cutting a piece of rope. It's a parable. What's the, what's the analog? What do you think? Story of the guy cutting rope. What's We're the intertwined. We're all intertwined. What else? What else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got you. What else? What else? What's the message? What do you think? Don't be selfish. What else? Your individual action can have unforeseen consequences for the whole community. Yeah, your one action could have a lot of un- unforeseen consequences. What else? Sometimes a small action. I just cut a little bit of rope. Also the individual perspective. He didn't have a perspective. Right, he's like, I want rope. Like, whatever happens, happens. Yeah, but sometimes even a little action can, can have a big consequence. Can have a big consequence. And again, this is a parable. If you want to tell somebody about the, you know, how one action can, can change the world or one action can affect things positive or negative, you could say that. But it helps to have a parable, a mushal. It helps to have like a story, an illustration, even if it's not a real story that ever happened. But it, it helps kind of contextualize it.
So today we did probably five or six different mashalim, different parables. We started with the king and the prince and the woman, and then we went to baseball, and then we talked about, man, what did we talk about? We talked about light, and we talked about rope, we talked about boats, maybe something else along the way. And all of this was to explore the technique of sharing an idea, not as a pure idea, but couched in a story, in an illustration. And the reason why we do this is in order to help convey the idea in a way that's relatable. One more. It's not a parable. It's an illustration. Teach a child. Teach a five-year-old child. You want to teach a five-year-old child math. Addition. All right? So you'd say... Two plus two is four. Might as well be talking to the walls. Two plus two is four. For a child, those are words. Two plus two is four. You ever see a little child uh, encounter math for the first time? You ask them what's, uh, what's one plus one? They, they don't even understand the concept of why one thing plus another thing equals another thing. Like all, all of that, the entire concept of the equation is just speaking a foreign language, let alone the details of the equation. Are you with me on this? It, it's, it's, yeah, it's like, it's completely beyond, at a, a certain age, it's, be, it's completely beyond the child's grasp of what that means. So forget about two plus two is four, because that doesn't mean anything. Here's what you do. Take two apples, or two cups, as it were. Put, it down, put them down in front of the child. Say, how many, how many cups? Two. Take another two. How many do you have? Four. Great. Two plus two equals four. Two apples plus another two apples. How many do you have now? Four apples. And then you say, what's three plus three? And you get 12. But, but the point is like this. The point is like this. That you've taken an abstract concept. See, we're so proficient in math and it's so intuitive to us at, at, at an older age, right? that it seems obvious two plus two is four. We don't need the parable. But for a young child, two plus two is four doesn't mean anything. It literally doesn't mean anything. It's just words. You ever hear a child when they first encounter a joke and they want to tell you a joke? Like you tell them a joke and then they want to tell you a joke. Kids make up jokes all the time. Their jokes are sometimes even less funny than my jokes. I know, I know, I know how that's... No, but it's not a knock against kids because they're figuring these, these things out, right? It's not, a, it's not a knock, it's not a negative. It's part of the learning process. A child hears like a setup and punchline and doesn't understand the, the, the as perhaps sometimes I don't either, the, the exact nuances of what makes a setup a setup and a punchline a punchline. What makes the surprise element, so it's like... Uh, a dinosaur walked into a house, pizza. And they expect a laugh because isn't that the way it goes? Are you with me on what I'm saying? The, the construct, the basic construct is there, but the, the, the details of how that works, a child, a, young, a younger person has to develop and has to understand, or has, doesn't have to, but will come to understand and grow into. But getting back to mathematics... I was just thinking about a, a podcast that I once listened to. Apparently, there was one of the worst commercials ever 
in history was a McDonald's commercial. I say worst, one of the worst like playing commercials. Like people hated the commercial. It was an American commercial and it was for McDonald's and it was the, um, I think it was called the Random Red Couch. Random Red Couch. Something like that, Random Red Couch. I think I remember that. It was like, it was like, it was a red couch, red sofa. I think they said sofa, I think it was a couch. Random red couch. And it showed people like, oh, smiling, having fun, like flopping into the couch and then eating McDonald's and like, and just, it like, it, it totally fell flat. People were so annoyed and bugged by it, they pulled the commercial. This podcast was dedicated, this episode, to figuring out how that ever got approved. How in the world did someone think that was a good idea for an ad? It was so, literally it was called the random red couch. Red, like the, the, there, was, it, there was a jingle even. A random red couch. It's like, what does that even mean? Here's what happened. They got a guy from England who, had been, who, who was in the company, who had done very well in Europe and England. They brought him over to America. And his perspective of American humor was that it was random. Seinfeld, friends, it's all like random friends on a couch. So he's like, perfect, random red couch. It's gonna do, it's gonna kill it in America. Problem is, he didn't understand the subtlety of the randomness. <laughs> it's not just random. Seinfeld is not just random stuff happening to New Yorkers. It's brilliantly random. Are you with me on this? There's a brilliance in the randomness. It's not just random. But what happens when you, don't, when you don't know it from the inside? You make a commercial that just absolutely, viscerally annoys people to the point that it, that it stands in infamy to this very day, even though no one here has heard about it. But trust me, it stands in infamy in advertising circles. What's the moral of the story? Tell a child two plus two is four. No idea what you're talking about. It's a random red couch. No idea what you're talking about. Two plus two is four. Give them two apples and another two apples. Now they get it. That is what a mushal is. That's what a parable is. A parable is what takes a theoretical concept and makes it real. Why am I telling you any of this today? Why are we talking about parables? Because everything that I've shared with you up until now is a parable. Everything that we've discussed today is a parable. Not for the individual lessons that we've gone through today. But the concept of a parable is a parable to how God created this world. How do you go from Atsilus, the world of emanation, to the worlds of Bia, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya, the worlds of creation, formation, and action? How do you go from a spiritual reality to ultimately a physical, concretized reality, this, here and now? Bricks and mortar and grass and trees. and How do you go from there to there? So Kabbalah says that there's a big jump between the origin of reality, the spiritual origin of reality, and the more concretized version of it. How do you go from one to the other? You know what it's like? It's like an analogy where you have a concept and you put it you make the concept manifest in a story. Is the story the concept? No, it's a story. 
Are apples mathematics? They're apples. But they represent something. They represent a lesson. They represent a higher truth or a truth that's beyond them. The story, the parable from the Zohar, how we started today's class, of the king and the prince and this woman, that's all to bring out the nature of monotheism and evil in this world, which is a very lofty concept. But instead of just expressing the pure concept, the Zohar puts it into a story. What is the relationship between the story and the message? On the one hand, once you see the message and the story, you say, That's the whole, they're the same, it's one and the same. The message and the story, they're all the same. But when you look at it on another level, you say that the message is the message. The story is like a shell. The story is a case that holds the message, but the story is not the message itself. The story is but the container. Does that make sense? The story is a container that holds that can hold the mess that, that can hold the message, but the story is in itself something disconnected. Our reality is a parable of the spiritual truths. This is the muscle. We are the apple to God's arithmetic. Someone isolate that. That's a good little good, good snippet right there. We are the apples to God's arithmetic. We are the baseball game to God's bar mitzvah speech. This is, you with me on this? This world, this reality, this physical reality is the parable of the spiritual truths that lie above. So what is our relationship with the spiritual source? That's the pure idea, as it were, of reality. And this, this is the construct that allows us to relate to that or gives us a sense of identity that we can then unravel or we can, we can uh, climb up to get to that higher truth. Does any of this make sense? This last piece? What I'm about to say might not make sense. The light, the flashlight thing you said before, it's kind of like this world's the echoes of the flashlight. Right. We are, right, we are, we are the pair, right. We, bottom line is we are the pair, all of these were parables, right? Today, we did parables and then, then the message. And the point is, that's us. We are the parable to God's spiritual truth. The relationship between the world of Atsilus, which is a spiritual reality, and us is the relationship between a concept and the parable and the story that we put it into. So you're teaching children, and you want to teach them a moral lesson. So you tell them a story that has that, that moral, that, that lesson inside of it. And they, their reality, they might only hear the story. You hope that they can unravel or unpack the story and extract the lesson from it. But it's a good story otherwise. This is the story, and God wants us to unpack the message, unpack the truth, and find the spirituality inside of this. Does that make sense? We are the story, inside is the spirituality. Find the spirituality in the story. Let's do this inside. All right, we're up to, um, we're in the middle of Discourse 21, I believe. We have just enough time to, to head inside our text and be a little bit dangerous. We're up to where it says the Prasa, 296. Middle of the page, 296. I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to read. All right, stay with me, guys. The Prasa. Atsilut 
which is the world of emanation, the highest spiritual reality, is utterly removed from Biyah. Again, Biyah is an acronym for Bria, Yitzira, Asiya. Those are the three lower worlds. We are in the A of Biyah, Asiya, which is the world of action. So Atzilut, there are four worlds in Kabbalah, four worlds in, in this, the, the strata of creation. So we have the world of Atzilut, which is, called, which is translated as emanation, Bria, creation, Yitzira, formation, Asiya is action. We, we are in the world of action, or at the end of the world of action. Atzilut, the relationship between these four worlds is one and three. The first world is vastly removed, in other words, vastly transcendent from the lower three realities. Let's continue. How then can there be a descent in a manner of hishtal shalot ilav'ol? How then, he's asking, can the light or the energy descend from Atzilut to Bria, to Yetzira, to Asiya, when you have an unbridgeable gulf, when you have this incredible gap between the highest world and the lower three worlds, how does the light flow down? And it has to. It has to, because if we're here, it means that it's an unbroken continuum. See parable of light prior in this class, right? It can't be broken. If you, if you, if you have a flashlight and at any point, or a flash is okay, if you have a laser beam, right? And at any point you, you put a, a shield in front of it, it's not going past the shield. So if there's, an un, if, if, there's a, if there's a gap between Atsilut and the other worlds, so how, does, how do they exist? There has to be a flow. The answer. The answer is, he says, this hishtashla, this evolution, is not like that within Atsilut itself among its spherot, or within Bria internally, or within the other worlds. It's not a straightforward cause and effect relationship where one at one level begets Begets the next level. I'll give you an example. He says, Heshtalshot within Atzilut itself or within, within Bria, within this, the Svirot. Give you an example. There's a Heshtalshot Ilva'al of Seichel Amidas, which means ideas and feelings. What you know affects how you feel. Okay? What you know in your head affects how you feel. If you become aware of something, oh, now you might be happy about it. That was like, oh, not happy. But if you become aware of something, oh, I like it, I'm excited. Somebody tells you, by the way, I have a gift for you today. It's like, oh, I'm excited. This is great. Why? Because ideas, that what you know, affects your emotions. Conversely, you can have something that you're, you, you become aware of that now you might be anxious about. You might be afraid because you learned something new. Now I'm afraid. I hope that doesn't happen. So ideas beget emotions naturally. Intelligence forms or gives rise to feelings, seichel and midais, intelligence and emotions. They have a continuum. That's a direct line. He's saying here the relationship between atzilut and the, and the lower three worlds is not as direct as intelligence and emotions. They have a direct, direct line. Atzilut and the, and the, the world of emanation, the other worlds, don't have a direct line, back and side. And yet they're connected. The hishtalshalot from atzilut to bria is through the prasa. The prasa means a curtain. The prasa can be compared to the relation of an illustration. And here's where, here's what I was doing today. The prasa, the curtain, can be compared to the relation of an illustration, a parable, to the original idea it is to illuminate. The illustration, the mushal, the parable, is quite alien to the original idea. Apples are not mathematics. And... The prince 
is not us. I know it represents us, but it's not us. It's a prince in a story. Right? The illustration is quite alien to the original idea. It conceals the original idea so completely that some may not even realize that it represents something other than itself. In other words, a person could hear a parable and think it's a great story and never realize there's a higher lesson. Later, he says, when the idea emerges from the illustration, it certainly is not the same as it was before it was clothed within the illustration, but neither is it a new and different idea. Now, you have something weird. You tell someone a story or a parable, and they hear all they hear right now is a story. And then you're like, by the way, like this is what I did before. That's how I started today's class. I said, here's a story of, of a king, a prince, and a woman. What does it mean? And we had all these different ideas. And you know, every one of us might have come up with a different lesson. But the, the teacher, the one who conceived of this, the Zohar in this case, had a, had a specific intent. But the recipient, until you tell them what it's, the message is, if you just hear the parable, you might think, number one, it's just a story. Number two, it might have another message. And the, the, the idea that emerges from the illustration, he says, is certainly not the same as it was before it was closed within the illustration. So it's, not, it's never going to be the same as the original idea because it's always going to be couched in the story. But neither is it a new and different idea. It's the same idea, but it's couched in an illustration. It is the original idea that was embodied in the illustration, but now it has a different character than before. When you take an idea and you put it into a parable or into a story or into an illustration, so what you're doing is you're kind of modifying the idea. Now the idea takes on the contours of the story. It's very hard to perfectly extract the lesson and, and keep it in an abstract, pure way and, and strip away any layer of story or parable from it. Are you with me on that? It's hard to strip that away. Back inside. This is the function of the prasa. It conceals the chachma vatzilot. When through the prasa becomes chachma bria, it is like the idea that emerges from the illustration. It is a derivative. So when you go from chachma vatzilot to chachma bria, when you go from the wisdom or the, the yeah, the, the wisdom of the world of emanation, to the next world down, wisdom of the world of creation, there is a gap in between the two. So how do you get from one to the other? It's like through the analogy. It's like through the parable. It's like the illustration. It's a derivative. It's not the same idea. It is clothed and cloaked in a new form. It is light that became new, new in the world of Bria. For it is not at all similar to the Chachma, we continue on page 298, that is an Atzilut. But it, is not the same, but it is not some entirely new entity, for it does derive from Chachma Vatzilut, but in a different form. In other words, it's related, but not exactly the same as before. It's the relationship between the, the original concept and the parable is the relationship between Atzilut and Berea, the world of emanation, the world of creation. It's pure idea versus analogy and parable that has, that has a handle on it. That's the relationship between the world of emanation and the world of creation. This is not the same as how Chachma Vatzilat relates to the infinite light. So that's how Atzilat relates to the lower worlds. How does Atzilat relate to what's above it? In the infinite light, in his essence, he continues here, there is no state of Chachma whatsoever. Chachma doesn't exist higher than Atzilat, higher than the world of emanation. No category of that sort. There's no, no such thing called Chachma in the Ein Sof, in the infinite. Chachma Vatzilat then is completely and utterly incomparable to the infinite light. But in Atzilat proper, there is a state called Chachma, so Chachma and Bria and even in Asiya are not utterly and absolutely incomparable to Atzilat's Chachma.
What he's saying here is the relationship between Atsilut, that's the world of emanation, and the worlds that follow it is radically different than the relationship between Atsilut and the reality that precedes it. Atsilut to beyond, Atsilut Ein Sof, is like something from nothing. There's no Chachma in the Ein Sof. Ein Sof means infinite. There's no chachma means wisdom. There's no wisdom in the Ein Sof. Not that Ein Sof is not wise, but there's no, there's no discernible dimension called chachma in the Ein Sof. So from Ein Sof to chachma is just an absolute blank wall. It's an absolute hischachos, something brand new, something from nothing. But to go from chachma vatzilut to chachma bria is like from an idea to a parable. There is a relativism. There is some relation from one to the other. It's a gap, but it's relative. That's what he says. But in Atsila proper, there is a state called Chachma, so Chachma and Bria, and even in Asiya, are not utterly and absolutely incomparable to Atsila's Chachma. So Chachma in the lower realms has some sort of relativism to Chachma in the highest realm. The latter is, in fact, removed from the state of Chachma Bria, in Bria. Therefore, the lower levels of Chachma emerge through the Prasa, meaning that they appear as different from Chachma and Atsilat. But they do have common terms of reference and relationship with Chachma and Atsilat, and that ends the chapter. What we've said today is the following, that there is a gap. What is the gap? There is a gap between the highest world and the lowest worlds. But notwithstanding the gap, there's still a connection. There's a gap, but there's still some sort of relationship. And what's the relationship like? It's like the relationship between an idea and its parable. Where on the one hand, there are two totally different realities. One is an idea, one is a story. But when you look a little bit deeper, you realize, okay, but the story reflects the parable. Even if it's, a, if it's apples, it's not math, it's not addition. But there's still a relativism, there's still a relationship. But between Atsilut and what's above it, incomparable. It's not even like an analogy or a parable. It's absolutely incomparable. So what's the message? That as far as we are from Atsilut, Atsilut is even further from the infinite. Again, I said this a few weeks ago. From one to a million, is it vast? Sure. But from one million to infinity is even vaster. So from our world to the highest world, it's like the parable to the analog, or the analogy to the analog. So it's distant, but it's still relative. On some level, there's still some relativity. Whereas from that highest realm to infinity, all bets are off. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? What it means is that we are created in the image of God. And what that means is that we are the analogy. We are the parable. And thus... If we peel back the layers, we can find divine truths in our world. We can find divine reality in our world. We can look at the world and discover God. Not that we're imposing our reality upon God. On the contrary, we have been crafted as an analogy or as a parable for the divine, for spirituality. And therefore, when we discover the truths of our universe... We're really discovering elements of the divine that have been embedded in this parable. And it, re- and it takes a clever student to reverse engineer and figure out what my teacher really meant. And so this is why the great scholars and the great mystics would look at the world and derive an analogy. In other words, how did the Rebbe look at baseball? Was baseball a separate reality, but you can use it for a bar mitzvah boy to tell him a good lesson? 
and encourage him on his way as he becomes bar mitzvah? Or did the Rebbe see baseball as nothing but a derivative of a higher truth? The fact that in sports you have fans and athletes, you have players and you have participants and, and spectators, that, it, that evolves as a parable from a higher truth that in life there's investing, there's being invested, there's participating, and then there's standing on the sidelines. And there's a certain time in life in which we stand on the sidelines. But then comes another time in life and that's when we have to get in the game. The Rebbe saw the world as an analogy of God, as an analogy for God for, or for divine concepts. The Rebbe was a scientist by training. He was an engineer as well. And the Rebbe used his knowledge of language, of science, of engineering, etc. to not to teach lessons, but to discover God in the universe. There's a bit of a difference between those two. One is that I'm, I'm illustrating spiritual concepts, Jewish concepts, by using things in our, in, our, uh, in, our, in our sandbox. But there's a deeper truth, and that is showing how God is found even on the diamond. It's a diff- a different. One is I'm using baseball as an analogy for bar mitzvah. As a sto- Another way is to see God, see spiritual truth, see Judaism in the baseball diamond. That's, that's really what's going on here. It's showing how this is manifest, the higher truths are manifest in every part of creation. And that speaks to the, to the unity and the oneness of all. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is there's a continuum. We are the parable. We are the mushal. And so when we look at ourselves, as it says in scripture, from my, things from Job, from my flesh, I can perceive God. Not that we're imposing on God, but we recognize that our reality is the analogy. And so this week, let's open our eyes to find the spiritual truths that are right around us because they are right around us. We are that analogy. And as we do so, we get ourselves ready for the holiday that's upcoming, which is Shavuot, which is the time, the the day that the Torah was given to us, divine revelation. There's one thing that that holiday gave us. It's a sense of unity and oneness, that we can find God in everything. Like the story goes, the guru, the Zen master, goes over to the, to the um, hot dog stand in Manhattan and says, make me one with everything. <laughs> the Zen master replies, oh, and then he gives him money, then he asks for change. <laughs> the hot dog guy says, change. Change comes from within. <laughs> All right, thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah Coffee. There is no Kabbalah Coffee next week. Why? Because we'll be right here, gathered for the holiday of Shavuot. Shavuot begins next Saturday night. It's a two-day holiday. So it begins Saturday night, and it goes Sunday and Monday. It ends Monday evening, Monday night at nightfall. And it's, again, the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai, the anniversary of the Revelation at Sinai. So we gather in synagogue on Sunday to hear the reading of the Ten Commandments. We will be having services in Chabad in town, upstairs in the sanctuary, starting at 10 o'clock. Ten Commandments around, I don't know, 10.45, 11-ish. Come for the Ten Commandments. Stay for a dairy brunch, ice cream party. It's a Sunday. So I have a Sunday on Sunday. An ice cream Sunday, as it were, on Sunday. Israel, it's one day. Yeah. We get, listen, they have one cheesecake, we have two cheesecakes. Wait, wait, can I just ask a 
Who's who's living better right now? About the holiday or about Kabbalah? Oh, so if it's about content, if it's about Kabbalah, wait, I have uh, just announcements before people go, and then we'll circle right back to that. So, but, but importantly, next Saturday night, we have a very special event. It's called Torah Talks. What are Torah Talks, you ask? It's a gathering in which we'll hear four talks from four individuals from our community, some of which may or may not be around this table, and uh, talks on different topics. Join us. 10.30 p.m., Saturday night, 10.30 till 12. The good news is Shabbat is a day of rest, which means take a nap Shabbat afternoon, right? Sleep in, not sleep in, sleep uh, throughout the day a little bit, the afternoon, then you'll be ready to go for Saturday night, 10.30 p.m., right here in Jeff's place. We'll have a deluxe cheesecake bar and coffee bar and exciting and captivating talks and insights and conversations. And uh, join us for study next Saturday night. By the way, the reason why we study at night is because when the Torah was given the first time, or the only time, but when the Torah was given 3,334 years ago, the Jews slept in and Moses had to wake them up. That's what it says. Thomas says, the sleep this time of year is like pleasant and so they slept in. So to fix that, tikkun, tikkun lel shavuot, to fix that, we stay up all night. So by the next morning, we're really exhausted. I don't know. But that's what, that's what our custom is. We stay up all night studying Torah. Listen, you don't have to commit to all night. Just give me that hour and a half from 10.30 to midnight, and then we can, we can take it from there already. Like we can already negotiate once you're here. We'll negotiate how long we want to go with other classes. I'll have other classes and other presentations to, to teach. But, but give me that 90 minutes. Let's get, let's get the, uh, the evening started. So we study Torah, and it's a tikkun. It's a, by the way, the Rebbe discusses this at length. Why were they sleeping? Why did they sleep in? They counted down all the days. Svirsa Omer, they were counting the days till, till uh, the Torah was given. How could they sleep in? The whole thing doesn't make sense. They were told from the beginning. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go so they may serve me on the mountain. They knew that there was a destination. That was before, before even the first plague hit, they knew that that was going to be the, uh, the destination, the culmination of this. So how'd they sleep in? So the Rebbe explains because sleep is a state of higher consciousness, right? When we sleep, the soul is not so enmeshed in the body. It's kind of like it's more transcendent, right? We're a little uh, unconscious, a little bit. It's a little taste of death, meaning the soul is a little bit elevated. So they figure that what would be the ideal state to accept the Torah? An elevated state of consciousness, right? They wanted to get high to receive the Torah, essentially. And that was a mistake, because God wants the Torah here with us implementing it in a physical way. Classic idea that the Rebbe shared time and again. The idea that we're not meant to get out of ourselves. Right? Torments is not about, not about escaping self. Sleeping, escaping, getting high. But it's about living here um, and, uh, and with eyes wide open and clear vision of, of our reality. All right. So that's about Shavuot. Join us next Saturday night. Uh, June 4th at 10.30 p.m. Sunday morning, 10 a.m. for um, for Ten Commandments and Dairy Brunch, following services, etc. Okay, thank you all for joining. Donna, jump in. Right, so last, your last sentence was, we are the parable, right? So we have but the parable and then the message. So yes. The message of us being the parable? Oh, what's the message of us being the parable? So number one, that there's a continuum, there's a connection, a relationship between us and the source, which is incredible. That we are a continuum. And we can find the divine in this reality. 
That's the point. That's the big idea. We can find the divine right here. And it's not superimposing upon God or superimposing something. It's on the contrary. We are the analogy. We are the parable. It also helps us not take things a little too seriously over here. Right? When you know it's just the muscle, it's just the parable. All right, I want to thank Dr. Maxi. Thank you for sponsoring Kabbalah and Coffee in, uh, in, in memory of your dear mother. Thank you very much. May all the learning indeed be for her eternal and, uh, and precious memory. Thank you, thank you. Um, I w- want to wish everybody a Shavuot Tov. Have a wonderful week, a week filled with blessings and study. We have one more week till, uh, till Shavuot, one more week of prep. So let's get ready for the holiday. We have classes throughout the week, Daily Power Parsha. We have, uh, we have um, JLI Tuesday night and Thursday. And we have other stuff going on as well. So stay tuned. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Yaakov and Tony and Mariana and Catherine and Dr. Maxi and Joe and Linda and Alex. Yes, Yaakov. Um, it may be the same as the, uh, the question Donna just asked, but why is there a necessity for the, um, the curtain? Um, you, you mentioned that. It's too pure. A, a, a it's... direct relationship with God is the actual real connection beyond the parable yeah i mean is is that necessary or is there a protection yeah from atzilu from berea so that we don't cause damage to atzilu is that is that excellent questions i don't think it's about the protection as much as it is about it it's too strong it would be too pure we would be if there was no curtain we wouldn't look like this we would be it would still be atzilu which is a spiritual reality does that make sense so yep. God steps it down to the parable, and that's us. We are the parable, so we take concretized. Like an idea that takes concretized form in a parable, we are spiritual energy concretized. That's why our reality is a physical reality. Imagine if there was no analogy, there would be no lower worlds. It would just be Atzilut, a world of angels. Now that might be fine, but it wouldn't be this. Why did God want this? Well, there's a whole suite of answers why God wanted this. But to get this, the relationship between this and source is like, Analog analogy or, you know, intention and, and parable. So in order for it to get here, it has to be, I mean, this is the analogy. Like this, this is the apple to the equation. It is the physical embodiment of the equation. That's what we are. We are the physical embodiment of spiritual energy. That's what this is. I hope that makes sense. So we're, we're here to do the right thing or, and, and just not worry about about anything other well no 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 we're also no like you said before we are meant to peel back the layers and to discover the deeper truths a hundred percent hundred percent but we couldn't be here to peel back layers if there was no parable like we're created through the our reality is created through the parable so that's why so it's 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 inextricable from that from that space and there's an achievement what is the achievement in god's eyes once we do that it's the light being born from darkness. It's the awareness from the, from the lack of awareness. It's the chiddush. It's the novelty. It goes back to what Don asked before, which is why, like, what's, what's the whole purpose of, of being? <coughs> Just to make the soul stronger? Who cares? Let the soul not be so strong. Like, does it really matter? And the answer is, well, number one, for whatever reason God decided that it does matter, but also number two, there is something novel about something discovering something there's 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 a beauty of discovery it's like any great story it's about a hero making a discovery i don't know any great story but many great stories about a hero making a discovery if there's no discovery happening or if there's no need for discovery 
your plot line kind of, you know, becomes a little bit more shallow. So we are, we are the parable. And our job is to peel back the layers and realize the source. Peel back the layers and see the author. It's kind of like looking at a piece of art and recognizing that, oh yeah, this is created by an artist. And this is what the intention of the artist is. Like, oh, this is beautiful. So more of an appreciate art. the yeah. creator might be a, a purpose of creation? Or see, see spirituality everywhere. That would be the yeah. holy grail to mix metaphors. That would be the holy, right? That would be the ultimate, is to see the divine in the physical. That's like the good student who sees the point, the message in the parable. When they hear the story, they, they get it. They see it right away. They, they, they don't hear the story of the prince and the king and they, see, they, 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 they know the message. They see the message. When we look at the world, what do we see? Do we see stuff or do we see divine? Right? So this is Torah, Kabbalah is about, a, about opening up our eyes to see beyond the surface and to see the truth. Which is, which is which, it's more of an appreciation of, of God because uh, if we were in Hatzilut, it would just be obvious. Be obvious. We, there would be no we, trick. And, and there would be no us to observe. There would be no observer. Uh, the, the observation, it, it would be so obvious, but there would also be no independent. When you have a parable, you, can, you have two elements now. You have the story and then you have the message. If you just have the message, there's only oneness which is great, but then there's no observation. So when you have creation, right, when you have us, you have the observer from the, and then you have the, right, you have that, the, the, un, the undoing of that or the, the peeling back the layers. You, if, if, if there's no other reality other than Atzilut, then not only is the awareness not as cool because it, it wasn't the, process, the product of work, Who's being aware of what? It's like, it's complete submersion in reality. It's not necessarily even an awareness of that reality. Awareness requires like an outside observation. So like here in the parable, we can say, oh, that's what's going on. In Atzilut, it's just like, not that it's only obvious, but there's no observer. It's all, it's all one. So it also seems like this is answers in part to me, the whole question of, quote, evil, to your earlier comments, it's not an external force, there's all oneness, but the more I understand my place in the parable, and the more I understand, and the more I can seek godliness and and aspire to manifest absolute in this manifestation, that seems to solve a lot of the problem of evil because if I'm do if I'm bringing light, if I'm being light, if I'm doing good, sort of seems to snuff out those dark corners where evil can exist. And when I see evil itself as a parable, then I'm like, oh, it's not actually evil. It's all part of God's employ. It's all in the God squad. It's part of the God squad anyway. And then it ceases to be dark because it's like, oh, of course I'm going to have something that tells me to do something wrong. Of course. That's all part of the design. Suddenly, you've taken the bite out of it. There's no bite anymore. It's like, yeah, you expect it. It's obvious. It's like, yeah, I know who you are. That's what I was saying before, but you're right. Then you start seeing the world in that lens of oneness, and, and just it, everything changes. Everything changes. And that's the holy grail. Again, I keep on using that. It's the holy grail of Kabbalah, which is, which is to see the world 
through a completely different lens. And when I say completely different, what I mean is from a unified lens, that this is not just you know, God in the world, but that this is a parable of God. This is an analogy of the divine. And thus, I mean, it's a game changer on every level. It's an absolute game changer. But, but we don't want to rationalize the way evil, I mean... How do we not be, uh, you know, depressed, you know, when we see all these uh, Ukrainians being being slaughtered? No, no, no. Uh, two, no, two issues. And I think this is what we differentiated before. There is the concept or the drive of negativity, and then there's the doing. We are not reframing acts of evil. Acts of evil are negative choices. So that's the commission of evil is something else. That's not good, and suffering is suffering, and pain is pain. We're not reframing that, and at least not in this class. But what we are saying is that the temptation, remember the analogy is that the king hires this woman to tempt the, the prince. So that we, I want to leave it right with that, with that, with that construct. So right. That means that the possibility or the drive for negativity, that itself is coming from ultimately a positive place, a place to make us stronger. But let's not fall for it because it's also part of something positive that is unleashed when we see for what it is and when we don't uh, uh, fall prey to its to its clutch uh, or, or to its advances. So that's that's really conscious. How do we view evil in the world as something to fix? That's that's something that we that we need to step up and fix. That's that's clear. Our job is not to say well everything's fine because it's all divine. So therefore it's it's like the oh and you know you raise a point that that, that highlights uh, and maybe I'll end with this that highlights the tension the tension between recognize that everything is a divine parable and between recognizing our role in this world. It's like the. It's like the um, Roman or Greek whatever who asked Rabbi Akiva or one of the Talmudic sages said, you believe that everything comes from God? Sure. You believe that God has a plan? Sure. So then why do you, um, why do you, I think he said, why do you pray for healing or something? Why do you heal the sick? If God wants them to be sick, then they should be sick. And, uh, and he says, do you ever eat bread? He says, yeah. Why do you take a wheat? That grew and, and grinded and then make it into something else that God didn't that God didn't make. You know, like people say, like if God intended human beings to fly, He would have given them wings. People who don't fly in airplanes, like if God wanted people to fly, they would give them wings. But Judaism looks at it differently. Like God gave us the tools to make to, to fix things. So on the one hand, we embrace that this is all divine parable. On the other hand, we also recognize that we have a role to, to fix things, to change things, to make things better. So we should never not want to make the wrongs in this world better. Because not everybody resists right. Sometimes the prince messes up. And at that point, we got to fix something. Anyway, all right. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you all. And uh, Shavua Tov. Lots of blessings to everybody. Take care. We'll see you guys soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me, and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.